0: you will have picked up, hopefully, that uh, I'm doing sort of a two-parter here. Pastor Nick asked me to take two Sundays in a row, and I tried to think, okay, what are some twos in the Bible? What are there two of? And what we landed on was the greatest commandments, the, the most important commandment and the second that is like it. And last week, we saw... Jesus point us to the great commandment to love God with all of our heart with all of our soul with all of our mind with all of our strength and we will move on this week to look more specifically at the second commandment that he names. We'll look at it in its original context, but I want to set the scene once again, and as I did last week, I'll read The passage where Jesus names these commandments. In his last days, in his earthly ministry in Jerusalem. We'll read from Mark's version of that episode. It's Mark chapter 12, verses 28 to 34. Feel free to read along with me if you have a Bible with you. And let's give our attention together to God's holy word. And the gospel of Jesus Christ. Mark 12, from verse 28. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, asked him, Which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Let me pray. Our Father, help us to hear the voice of Jesus in this word as we contemplate his own words the words that he spoke by your spirit first to Moses and to the people and that he then affirmed in the hearing of your people in Jerusalem in the last days of his earthly ministry we, we pray that you would help us to understand more deeply what you would have of us and to see more clearly who this Jesus is through what he commands. Speak, O Lord, for your servants listen. Amen. Again, looking back, to last Sunday, we saw that Jesus is dealing with his people's questioning. And, and the Jews, Jesus' people, they're, they're all looking for an answer to the question, what's it all about being God's people? They're, they're asking what God really wants of them here and now, and what will make sense of the lives that they're living or trying to live as God's people under Roman rule. And under Greek cultural domination in this alien world. And we saw that, that these, these groups of the Jewish leadership, they each had their own ideas and their agendas. Especially we saw the Sadducees who benefit from the existing order and they, they want stability. We saw the Pharisees who are more radical. They want to overturn the order that exists and impose their own new order. And Jesus won't pick a side. They both try to corner him because both of them are missing the point. And this scribe, we don't know anything about him other than he was some sort of an expert in the Old Testament law. He sees Jesus' wisdom He asks Jesus, all right, what's your answer? It's your answer. And so Jesus names this greatest commandment, love God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength, quoting Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and 5. We saw last week that this command is there to focus our attention on who God is, the God of Israel the Father of Jesus Christ. He's the true and living God. He is our God. He is God for us and with us. The God who loves us and saves us and establishes his covenant with us and promises a glorious future with him. And it also points us to the big picture, to the the point of God's law, that it's given to fight our forgetfulness, to wake us up again and again, to remind us, of what God wants from us, what God requires to remind us of our failure to meet those requirements of our hopelessness apart from his mercy, but also to remind us of how in Christ, by his spirit, he is renewing us by his mercy. And it reminds us of what one day will be. And in the same breath, right here as we've just read, Jesus names another commandment, the second commandment. And it's important to to see how he answers. He doesn't say, here's the second most important commandment. There's a bonus, right? No, he names both commandments together as his one answer to the question, which commandment is most important? Matthew, in his version of the story, he makes the point clearer. A second commandment is like the first. He says these two commandments, they're two sides of the same coin. So we say, if we want to see what fulfilling the first looks like, wholehearted love for God, then we need to see this second commandment in action. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And for the rest of our time, I want us to look at this commandment in its original context. Jesus uh, pulls out, as we you might say in the, the music business, a deep cut from God's law. It's in the book of Leviticus, chapter 19, and I would encourage you, if you, if you are looking at your own Bible, to open that up. To keep that in front of you is, as we look at where this commandment is and what that shows us, about what's going on and and why Jesus lands on this one points us to this particular commandment in the middle of this book that has wrecked a lot of well-meant one-year Bible reading plans and I'll read once again from God's word read from verse 11 the verses leading up to this second great commandment. So once again, let's give our attention to God's holy, unbreakable, inerrant word. Leviticus 19, verse 11. You shall not steal. You shall not deal falsely. You shall not lie to one another. You shall not swear by my name falsely and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired servant shall not remain with you all night until the morning. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind, but you shall fear your God. I am the Lord. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people, and you shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. The, Lord. the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Now, last Sunday, I compared the way Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5 to, if you ask somebody, what's America all about, if they quoted the Declaration of Independence to you. It's a foundational text, right? It's the most famous text. Expression of this idea of what America is supposed to be all about. Now, the second verse that Jesus quotes, it's, it's a little less obvious. Um, buried in the middle of the book of Leviticus. It's in a long section with all sorts of rules about very specific things. It's in a book that, again, if you have had your Bible reading plan wrecked by Leviticus, you know, starts off... With lots of rules for priests in ancient Israel. You probably don't know many of those. Um, things telling them how to offer their sacrifices, how to maintain ritual purity, things that we don't think about in most of our lives. And for Jesus to go here in this book, it feels a lot more specific. It feels much more concrete than love your God with all your heart. If that command is like a quotation from the Declaration of Independence, this one may be like answering the question, what's America all about, by talking about baseball games, or Fourth of July cookouts, fireworks, high fructose corn syrup. We, uh, my family, were getting ready to go back to the U.S. for uh, a year starting this summer. And if you ask my children, at least my oldest who can remember America, what it's all about there what they remember it's it's chick-fil-a it's big jars of peanut butter you know free bathrooms and free refills it's incredible it's it's the real life details it's 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 life in america lived out that's maybe what this commandment looks more like like the first commandment it's it's really simple we don't have to puzzle, really, over what this could possibly mean, but it's radical, so we might like to. Love in the Bible, I hope you've heard this over and over again, it's, it's much, much more than an emotion. It's an active, conscious choice. It is lived-out dedication to someone else, choosing them, And so when we read, love your neighbor as yourself, we need to understand this to mean, for me, what's good for any given person in my life is just as important as what's good for me. And we don't get to limit what sort of people might count as our neighbor. It's the point of the story that Jesus tells in Luke 10. We know it is the story of the Good Samaritan. But it's clear from this chapter as well, if you look forward uh, quite a few verses to verse 34. You see exactly the same standard applied to strangers who sojourn in Israel, foreigners living with the Israelites. You are to love these people as yourself, not just your own people. Whoever is physically there, whoever's part of your life, that is your neighbor. When we talk about love, it goes well beyond just not doing harm. Now, there's a lot of that. We've, we've heard that in these verses. Negative commands. Don't steal. Don't lie. Don't oppress or rob or curse or mock or defraud. Slander, hate. Take vengeance. Bear a grudge. I'll give the translator a moment. But there are positive commands too. It's not just don't do all these things that would be unloving. It's judge your neighbor in righteousness. It's reason, frankly, speak openly with your neighbor about the problems there are. Love your neighbor is a positive, active command. We shouldn't be surprised that Jesus interprets this actively in another place. It's not, don't do anything to others that you wouldn't want them to do to you. And that's exactly how a very famous rabbi, a couple of generations before Jesus, had actually summed up the law of God. No, Jesus says, do to others what you would have them do to you. What you want others to do to you, you go and do for them. That's what it means, that's what it requires, that's the standard So I want to look again, as we did last week, really just taking a, a slightly different angle on what the great commandment does. I want to see two aspects of what this second one does in, for, and with us. First, it shows us what the image of God looks like in action, the image of God. And it makes our whole life an acceptable offering to God, the image of God and our life as an acceptable offering. First, we'll look at the image of God in action. Hopefully, you picked up the rhythm as I read. There are four sort of short paragraphs leading up to this great commandment. And each one is punctuated, has like a refrain or a chorus. I am the Lord. And in these four sets of verses... It's much clearer in in the original how they all hang together. But we have some words that don't show up in other parts of the chapter. There's all this talk about your neighbor. In your translation, if you're using the ESV, uh, behind that word neighbor are actually two different words. One another. Your people. Your brother. It's talking about the relationships that you have. And again and again. I am the Lord, is the reason that God gives, to keep these commandments. Now, it's easy to read this as God just sort of saying, because I'm your father and I said so. That misses the point. And the point that God is making is is much, much clearer right at the beginning of this chapter. Look at verse 1 and 2 if you have your Bible open. God says very famously, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. He's not saying, Because I'm your father and I said so. He's saying, Because I'm your father, you are supposed to take after me. Israel, of all people, whom God calls his firstborn son, is supposed to show the world what the image of God is all about. What we human beings are made to be because we are each made in that image. And so what does the image of God look like in action, in real life? If we just focus on this one part of the chapter, we see four aspects, really three summed up in the fourth. And we are just scratching the surface of the depths of what this command means. The first aspect I would describe as truth, we see it in verses 11 and 12. They're laws having to do with how we treat our our peers, our equals. Do I see the people around me as competitors? Are they my opponents? Do I want what they have that I can't have unless they lose it? Do I need somehow to get ahead, even if it means cheating, stealing, or lying? And this sort of sin gets a lot worse when we drag God's name into it and we start using God to get what we want. Treating him and his character as means to our ends. And the image of God looks To the contrary, like love of truth. Love of the truth means contentment, actually, with what God has given us. Respect for what God has given others. It means being trustworthy. It means extending trust to others. It means remembering always that we are marked, named with God's name. And that everything that we do and everything we say is always saying something about who this God is. Whether it's true or false. Truth comes first and then in the second pair of verses, 13 and 14, we find mercy. These verses have to do with how we treat people that we have some sort of power over or authority. How do I treat people who are weaker? How do I treat people who have fewer resources than I am, I do, fewer connections than I do, people who are just sort of lower down on the totem pole. How do I treat these people? And in the first place, what God says is, we don't use our power to get the things we want out of people who can't defend themselves. We don't cheat or extort people to make ourselves rich, it should be clear. We don't see what we can get away with. Because we know that somebody can't defend himself. Might not have been otherwise illegal not to pay your employees on time, but you do it anyway. Even worse than these kinds of sins is, is when we use our power, whatever form, to humiliate those who are weaker. Just maybe for the fun of feeling superior for our own amusement. You see that in verse 14 with this cursing the deaf or putting a stumbling block before the blind. We're showing then that we have no fear of God. But God can hear and see even if our victims can't. You know, the image of God looks like love of mercy. It means using our power or our influence or our means for the benefit of those who can't pay us back in kind means giving others dignity in the way that we treat them. It means showing that we know that the poor and the rich have one maker. It's love of mercy, third, verses 15 and 16, justice. And These are verses that are really about the formal process, a trial, a lawsuit decided in court. And it was pretty different in these days when when these verses were first given. If you were going to court against somebody else, most likely, who would decide the case? Well, it would be the elders of your village. It would be people who knew you. It would be people who knew your opponent, your adversary. And so it was especially important in that context to say, if you are responsible to administer Justice to do justice. You can't be influenced by your sympathies. Maybe you feel sorry for the weaker party. You can't be influenced by your fear of someone who is powerful and might retaliate. You have to be instructed by God's law and not your own interests and not your own relationships. There's... A word for those who are involved in the court case. Maybe someone who's a witness. You have a certain type of power then too. You might try to influence how the case turns out. You might slander somebody. Try to turn the judges against them. Most especially, you might have the opportunity to use your chance to testify to destroy somebody's life. You really could. As a witness... You could take revenge by giving false testimony. There's a warning against that here. No, the image of God, it looks like love of justice. It means using whatever responsibility we're given to make sure that we, as a a family, a church, a society, protect the innocent and punish the guilty. Even when this might not line up with our own interests and desires. Simply because it is right. It is the will of the God who is the righteous judge of all the earth. Being made in his image means loving justice. And of course, fourth, in these final two verses, 17 and 18, we come to the climax of the section. And God starts to warn against attitudes and habits in our hearts. That become the root of all these other kinds of sins against others. God says you may not store up your anger and your resentment against another person. If someone sins against you, you are warned. If you don't speak honestly about that with that person, you will incur sin because of him. It says in verse 17. It says if you are not warning this person... That he or she is in the wrong. You are an accessory. You're helping him to sin in that way. And of course, if you let the way that you've been hurt or been wronged fester in your heart, you're just asking that bitterness to grow into an anger that's going to reveal itself in sin. And we see that so classically in Genesis 4 in the story of Cain didn't speak to his brother, he didn't speak honestly with his God. God told him, God warned him, that, that that sin was like an animal. It's like a wild beast crouching at the door of his tent, just waiting to get him. And he became the first murderer because he didn't listen. And so the final word. This command to love your neighbor as yourself. It brings all these different aspects of the image of God together. Truth and mercy and justice. Love. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13, famous words. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing. It rejoices with the truth. Love does not envy doesn't use another's guilt for its own advantage it certainly does not pervert the course of justice to get its own way the image of God brothers and sisters looks like love of neighbor and at heart what that means is that I desire for my neighbor what I ultimately desire for myself which is to be right with God as painful as it can often be it, It looks very often like helping my neighbor to repent, just as I need help to repent. We want our neighbor to be right with God because God is truth. He is mercy. He is justice. He is love. When we want these things for our neighbor, We are wanting for our neighbor to be renewed in the image of God, to be like God, to have the very best good it is possible to have. Now, there's so much more we could say. There there are all sorts of other facets of God's image in all different areas of life, even just in this chapter. But we're going to zoom out a little bit. And when we zoom out, we we can see what this life living out the image of God means it means that we become a living sacrifice acceptable to God did it maybe stand out to you in that conversation with the scribe he's impressed with how Jesus answers and he explains it he says loving God with all your heart all your minds loving your neighbor as yourself it's better than all offerings and burnt sacrifices why does he say that These things all go together in God's law. These verses that we've just read in Leviticus, they're embedded in a larger section that, as I've said, is all about what it would look like for Israel to reflect the holiness of its God. And there's a lot of rules there that we don't consider binding for us nowadays as Christians. We are free from, from a lot of the very specific requirements of the Old Testament law. But, but we all sort of realize, especially reading the New Testament, that some of these things still bind our consciences. We, we must obey these things. Now, What's the logic behind which commandments apply and which ones don't? Well, the tradition has done this. In a few different ways, in, in, in our theological tradition, we usually divide the different commands into three basic categories. First, the moral law. It's what's summed up in these two great commandments. It's what's summed up in the Ten Commandments. These are the, the ones that, that we say always apply to every human being everywhere. We have, second, the civil law law the rules for how Israel was to be governed, how Israelites were to live their daily lives in the promised land, whether that's farming or building or, or whatever. It was about applying this moral law to life in Israel as a nation at that time and place. We would tend to say we can draw lessons from that about how to apply the moral law. But it's not usually relevant now. Not many of us have to think about leaving a little bit at the edges of our fields when we harvest. We might say that in our situation would not be the best way to provide for the poor. And then third, we have what's called the ceremonial law. And this is those, those rules, those, those things that kill your Bible reading plan. It's the rules for sacrifice, the rules for purity, what to do if you have a weird skin disease. These things are all about dealing with the reality that the Israelites were not able, not willing from the heart to fulfill the law of love. That they were in need of God's mercy and God's protection from his judgment for their sin. But the book as a whole, most fundamentally, and what holds all of these categories together is that it's about how to be near God. It's about how to approach God, how to live in relationship to him as he wants us to. And it's not simple. Because we are guilty of disobedience toward God. And we're also stained by the evil that's in our thoughts and our words and our deeds. It makes us offensive to God. And it makes his presence dangerous to us. But the point, the point of it all is that we are supposed to be near God. I was um, a freshman, a first-year college student. I was out on a men's retreat uh, in West Texas where the stars at night, in fact, are big and bright. It was the night before the space shuttle Columbia disintegrated on re-entry. And if I hadn't been a college student and had gotten up a little bit earlier, I would have seen it in the sky. Seven astronauts died. And if you remember the news back then, it's been a little while, 20 years. They died because the shuttle's heat shield had been slightly damaged on liftoff. And because of this this little failure in the heat shield, the superheated atmospheric gases could break through into the shuttle and burn it up that's what all these weird rules and regulations for Israel are like they're like that heat shield that protects sinners against the burning presence of a holy god or maybe you can think of how scientists study the very deepest parts of the ocean the trenches that go miles down And they'll send down, unless they're James Cameron, they'll send down robotic submersibles rather than going down there themselves. And these these robots allow them to see, collect samples, measure things without putting the scientists in danger from the unbelievable pressure and cold of that environment down there. That's what the sacrifices did for Israel. They sinful human beings were not acceptable to God but these innocent animals were and they could be sent into God's presence in their place. Now we say that the ceremonial law doesn't apply to us Christians and that's true. It's not because God doesn't care about those rules anymore. It's because Jesus Christ has actually done himself what all those sacrifices and rules were always meant to. To communicate what they meant. He has become the perfect, acceptable sacrifice, and in Him, we are purified. We are acceptable to God without the blood of bulls and goats. We can go into that burning presence without a heat shield. We can go into that unbearable weight of glory ourselves without the blood of bulls and goats. Now, on the one hand, our very imperfect love for God, our worship of him, is acceptable because we are united to Christ who is the perfect and immortal high priest. And on the other hand, every good work that we do, and a good work is anything that we do truly out of love to God and our neighbor, is also made holy and acceptable by Christ's sacrifice. We are able to be living sacrifices devoted to God for his use only. What's the application of this? Well, it's everything, literally everything about your life. This is the basis for what we, as Protestants, call the doctrine of vocation whoever you are, whatever you do, God has actually called you in and to your situation in life so that you can offer up everything you are and everything you do to him. You are holy. You are holy if you believe in Jesus Christ. And that means your service, not just to God here and now with our songs and our prayers, but in every part of your life, your service to others is a holy offering to God. If we really grasp this, and this commandment, when we look at it in light of the gospel, we could almost say that it becomes life giving, or at least it is so profoundly helpful to those of us who find in our everyday lives that we're asking, what's this really all about? What makes sense of what I'm doing with my life? Our everyday lives have a point. Being a Christian at work, it doesn't just mean that we do our jobs just like everybody else, except maybe we try to, you know, slip tracts onto our neighbor's desk or get a little bit of evangelism happening around the water cooler. No, the work itself. That you do is something pleasing to God if you do it well. For the good of those that you serve with that job or that your employer serves. Now, that's not easy for every job. It's not easy to figure out how that works. I I can tell you that. And maybe you will need to really rethink for yourself what, what the purpose of your work is. And you might have a different notion than your employer does. But the principle is that every legitimate job, every job that in itself is not sinful, is a means by which God provides people with something that they need, some blessing that he gives. Of course, vocation, it goes beyond what we usually think of as our work. Everything about our situation in life is a part of this. Everything we do can be offered to God. Kids, who is your neighbor? It's your mom and dad. I'm afraid to say it's your brother and your sister. That's your neighbor, your classmates, your teachers. And when you love and serve these people, and I know how hard it is, I have five children, when you love and serve these people, God is loving and serving them through you. Because you are made in his image. Husbands and wives. You have the nearest neighbor there is. And your love and service to each other is God loving and serving your spouse through you. Moms and dads. Right there with you. Right in the trenches. Changing the exploded diapers. Washing the dishes. Breaking up the thousandth fight this week between your kids it is holy work it's holy work it's a holy calling for everybody what you do in your free time if you've got some of that the things that you read or that you watch the the skills that you learn just for your own enrichment the hobbies that you share These can absolutely all be ways to love your neighbor and delight your God. That's what this commandment means. And the key to understanding this is to see what I've mentioned a few times. It's that God's love is what's really at work in our love. Paul writes... In Romans 5, the chapter where our assurance of pardon this morning came from, that the the love of God has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. This is the key, because if it's just our love that we somehow summon up out of the depths of our hearts, we're just going to end up further from God. Maybe you've experienced that. If it's up to us to love others out of the goodness of our own hearts, well, we'll treat others probably better than we might if we didn't know that this was what God wanted but if we're honest with ourselves we know that we never look out for our friends and our neighbors let alone strangers or enemies the way that we look out for ourselves but the gospel of Jesus Christ not only shows us what love really is it tells us that the infinite unfading love of the God who is love is at work in us because of what Christ has done for us. Read Romans 5. You'll see how it works. Jesus came into the world to make us his neighbors. And he has loved us as himself, not just by healing the sick, raising the dead, giving sight to the blind, making lame people walk, not only by dying to take away our sin, not only by rising into new life to reign as king forever, but by doing all of that for one reason, to bring us to God, to bring us back to our maker, to bring us back to our Father. I said last week that the commandments when we see them in the light of the gospel, that they're not just requirements anymore, but they are promises for us. And the reason that these two commandments together are the greatest is that these are the commandments where we can see most clearly that more than anything else we're called to do, we will fulfill these commandments in all eternity. One day. We are going to see God. We are going to know him truly as he is. We are going to love him without reservations, without limitations, forever and ever. And on that day, we are going to be not alone, not just me and Jesus. We are going to be in company like this, but infinitely bigger, a countless multitude of neighbors who are sharing in the same love of God and we will love each one of them as well we will want for them nothing more than to share this eternal joy of loving and being loved by the God who made us with them and so truth mercy and justice will all have their final and perfect fulfillment and for now There's no better way to know how certain this promise is than to know the love of God at work in us, to meditate on the love of God for us and for our neighbor as we devote ourselves to him and to all those he's put in our lives. Thanks be to God. Let me pray. Father, you know how weak our love here and now is. How far we are from what we will one day be. How little we can imagine what it might even mean to know you this way. But we thank you that you have revealed to us who you are what you are in Jesus Christ our Lord help us to see the goodness of love for one another as the perfect expression for love for you pour this love into our hearts more and more help us to grasp the gospel to hold fast to Jesus Christ and to overflow with the love that will be our life for all eternity, together with you, through Jesus Christ, your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen.